internationalism is essential. Like we have to understand yeah. that I, I'm not yeah. an American. I'm a human being. And the working class person in China, a working class person in Africa, a working class person anywhere in the world has more of my common interests and my children's interests long term than the ruling class of my own country. Welcome to This American Left. My name is Matthew. My name is Hannah. And, and we are siblings, siblings. <laughs> which we usually say. And then um, we usually get embarrassed, but it's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but so today, uh, I know our first two episodes were very like research heavy, uh, a lot of statistics that we were citing. So we kind of wanted to just have a more of a laid back conversation today. Um, talk about kind of the basics of, of leftist perspectives. Um, I know some some of you listeners out there are just kind of becoming radicalized now, which is good. Um, so we want to go over some of the basics and talk about kind of the moment we're in right now. And so we do have a special guest on the program today. Uh, we have Brett from Revolutionary Left Radio. Um, he is also the co-host of Red Menace podcast. And then there is actually a brand new podcast called Guerrilla History that Brett is also a co-host on. Um, so I've been re- listening to Rev Left Radio for a couple of years now. And it's an excellent uh, leftist leftist podcast. Um, a lot of it has changed my views, actually. Um, so I highly recommend everybody check it out. But um, yeah, Brett, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for those kind words about the show. And I'm excited to, to be here with both of you and just talk through what the hell's happening in our country right now <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> we need to figure that shit out <laughs> but um i mean i think a good way to start out is kind of if we want to just go around and talk about how we each kind of came to the position that we're at now in terms of our political views um you know it's a very as we know it's a very anti-communist country reactionary country that we live in um so brett if you want to start out with you know, talking about how you became a leftist, maybe. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was always like, I grew up very working class on the, on the lower end of, of the working class. And um, I wasn't very political until, um, you know, roughly around high school. I think I started getting involved with like, you know, just like very low level anti-war protesting during uh, the Bush administration. And then I was further pushed left um, by Occupy. And in fact, I think, you know, the Obama administration was for me what the Bernie failure in 2016 was for, for a lot of others. And that, mm-hmm. you know, in the early days of the Obama years, I was very like excited. I thought, you know, maybe this country can finally solve some of its problems and move in a progressive direction. Um, I, I had just become a father at age, I think 20 at 19 or 20 at the time when Obama took office. So, you know, I, for the first time I had a child and I was thinking, you know, this really could be the progressive sort of push that I've been looking for. And then the next eight years were nothing but concentrated uh, discouragement and uh, disillusionment with that ideal. And so, you know, as I continued to, to look for alternatives, um, I eventually came across Marxism um, at first in, in ways that were sort of half-assed. I mean, you know, I read the Communist Manifesto as like a 16-year-old and didn't really understand too much of it. Um but, you know, as time went on, Marxism, as I got deeper into it, it, it explained to me so much of 
of what I had gone through as a working class person and made so much sense about why this political system cannot create the results that I so desperately uh, wanted back then. And so, yeah, it's just been yeah. ever since then, it's just been me deepening my understanding mm-hmm. and um, trying to help others understand it as well. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of people have kind of a similar political trajectory. I know that I started out, um, I worked at this little independent bookstore when I was 18 to 19, and I started seeing um, Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn books. So I started to kind of develop a leftist perspective, but there was always, I, I was also into like Michael Moore, so there's always kind of like a mixture of like liberal perspectives in there. And I think, um, yeah, I attended a lot of Iraq war protests during college. So I was always like kind of interested in the leftist perspective, but I didn't really understand much of it i kind of just saw you know socialism as as people usually say just the workers owning and controlling the means of production but i didn't really like think about what that meant on a material level um but yeah more recently um i started like basically after that trump got elected i started becoming a little bit more radicalized and i think that's the case for a lot of people these days um I saw like, you know, armed leftists at protests and stuff. And I was like, what's this all about? Um, and so I started writing like political commentary. Um, some of it is published by the Hampton Institute. And I just kind of actually Rev Left Radio um, turned me on to a lot of stuff. So like I pretty much consider myself a Marxist Leninist at this point. Um, and I went to Cuba last summer with my wife. So that... Wow. <laughs> That was really cool to see. Um, obviously, there's a lot of issues with the embargo or the blockade, but uh, just in terms of the anti-imperialist kind of success of the Cuban Revolution. Um, and I went to the Museo de la Revolución. I got to see a lot of the, kind of the relics from the revolution. Um, so that was cool. But yeah, I mean, Hannah, what do you think? Like, what have you um, experienced so far? And yeah. how has that shaped your views? Well, I just wanted to say as well that now you make dank leftist memes, so we right. came full circle. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking, like, as both of you were talking, I think it's obviously I'm probably a bit younger than both of you, but um, I think growing up, like, I was very much fed, you know, whether it be from, like, family or society or both, this, like, very, like, Protestant work ethic um, like capitalist sort of way of living my life. So I did grow up kind of believing that I need to like do as well as possible in school, get into a good college, do as well as possible in college, get out, you know, internships, get a good job, like all of these sort of like typical steps. Um, and I think like as time went on, I was like realizing that like no matter how hard I worked, I was still in this like precarious situation like especially like after college and then it was like now you're expected to like go on and get further education and like the debts piling up and like you know I'm trying to like work these jobs on the side and like it just felt very like unmanageable Mm -hmm. in terms of like bills and just like eh, like what what I was expected to do and what I thought was like the correct thing to do wasn't making my life like stable um so I think like that was part of it as well as like when I was in college I basically was for the first time exposed to 
the idea of feminism. Um, and I started to like realize a lot of like, as a woman in the world, like the things that I've experienced and the things that I've been taught are actually like a systematic structure um, that are supposed to like keep me down and make me feel a certain way about myself. And then like from there, it just like branched off into like learning about like critical race theory and, um, you know, capitalism versus socialism, little less so on that aspect, but just more of these like overarching structures where I got kind of exposed to like, there's a system in place and it's like working for some people and not working for others. Um, so I think that was pretty yeah. eye opening. And like from there, I've just like continued to learn more about how those systems function, um, in society. Um, and now I work in mental health. So I think it's just more and more apparent to me that, um, the things that people struggle with and the way that they feel, uh, is like very clearly impacted by their material conditions and like their different levels of privilege and whatnot. Um, so I think it's been maybe more of a slow burn for me in terms of like radicalization. I know me and Matt joke about the fact that like, <laughs> even as recently as like this past spring, I, you know, witnessed an event where like there were some cops being shady towards some people in my neighborhood and me and a, me and a neighbor were like watching to make sure like nothing happened. And we were kind of like, okay, well, you know, fuck this situation. And then Matt was like, well, did you know that all cops are bastards? And I was like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> I guess, uh, that, that you have been telling me about this for a while. And then like, it just finally clicked. And then obviously everything happened since. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's yeah. Up. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. And uh, I would just mention kind of this is an example of the very quick radicalization that's happening because I, I saw um, Alex Vitali, the author of The End of Policing. I saw him give a talk something like a year ago. Um, it was a DSA event talking about police abolition and stuff. And just like how quickly people started um, advocating like defunding the police after the murder of George Floyd, I think is a really heartening example of how, you know, things can be changing, political consciousness can be expanding. And so like, I think, Brett, if you want to talk about kind of like this moment that we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a lot to talk about. One of the things that um, I thought about when, when Hannah, Hannah was talking was this this thing that most millennials were told growing up, you know, it's like, yeah. you have, you have to go to college. And if you go to college, you know, you, you could, that's how you make your way in the world. You know, it's a necessity and then you can be what you want. You can pursue your dreams, et cetera. And so a whole generation of kids were raised on that ideal. And then we all did what we were supposed to do. We went yeah. to college, like we got the education, we're like, okay, now we're, we're ready to go out into the world and make our living. And there's just a, and all of a sudden, you know, in that age I was coming, I think I graduated high school in 2007. So right as I was coming out of high school, and going into college or trying to was the great recession and we're still yeah. in the legacy of that as another recession hits us so for people of yeah. our age we grew up with 9-11 then the criminal iraq war then the great recession and now the pandemic slash economic depression that we're living in slash trump i mean how yeah. could anybody of our generation not be utterly disillusioned and then 
what our society is going through right now is what societies historically have gone through time and time again when the center no longer functions, which is a polarizing effect. So you see people that, you know, were liberals start looking leftward for alternatives and you see people who are conservatives start looking rightward, um, not only towards more explicitly fascist politics and this sort of weird personality cult, neo-fascist, strongman, authoritarian populism that Trump represents, but also that the diving off into the deep end of con- radically conspiratorial thinking. I mean, in these marches lately, they're even like chanting, you know, F Fox News and, and down with Fox News. And they're going to like these far right cartoonish propaganda machines like Newsmax and um, One America News Network. And so you see this radical epistemic break from reality on the far right. And you also see this sort of counter radicalization on the far left. But both sides, and particularly the far left, lack the national levels of organization needed to be able to go on the offensive. So all we can really do um, is go on the defensive. And that's that's still, you know, millions of people in the streets. That's still this, these historic protests this summer, which were beautiful and tragic and heartrending. And they showed that there's millions of people in this society that are not going to sit down and take it. But we don't have that organizational structure to be able to take that energy, sharpen it to a fine point and go on the offensive. And so I think that's what the left is really scrambling for. And perhaps left wing media, like the stuff that both of us are engaged in, all three of us are engaged in, is this attempt to build up the narratives and the culture necessary to Mm -hmm. push the push the left in that direction. Yeah, exactly. That's really good analysis. And I really appreciate all of your analysis, Brett, you know, from following you on social media and obviously Rev Left Radio as well. Um, but yeah, that's something we're trying to do is just kind of broaden the narrative and include these leftist views. Because something I've been noticing is like a lot of the protests, while it's obviously a good thing that these protests are occurring, there's sort of a spontaneity and not like a like a centralized kind of... yeah. Uh, organization, organizational component to, you know, s- funneling this energy into like specific means of, of building leftist power or socialist power. So um, maybe that's something we can touch on eventually, but I yeah, don't know. I think, what do you think, Anna? I think like, I mean, something that came to mind as Brett was speaking was just like, you know, even as like myself coming into this moment and really not having basically any experience with like protesting or these different like movements and it kind of was like all colliding and happening at once and I was like scrambling to try and like I don't know how to be an activist like that's not something that I was ever like taught and it's I think it can be kind of stressful for people because you're like oh my god all this horrible shit is happening and like what do I do and like Especially, like, people, I feel like a lot of people my age who are, like, very turned on to the idea of, like, you know, mutual aid and things like that. And it's, it can be, like, like Brett was saying, like, if there's not, like, an organizational structure, it's, you feel like you're just kind of, like, on social media and you're seeing all these things and you're, like, okay, well, like, where do I fit in? What march do I go to and why? And, like, all of a sudden you're, like, trying to educate yourself on all of these issues from, like, you know, like, institutional racism to, like, you know, the, the housing crisis to, like, socialism and, like, why are police bad? And, oh, my God, what's happening? And I think it's, I, I guess I don't know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, people's consciousness is kind of expanding in this moment. Um, but I think for me, it's been, 
I'm just trying to like grab from all these different sources. And it's like, I'm using literally Instagram as like an educational tool, an organizing tool. Like it's, it feels, I don't know how it feels, but it, it feels strange. And I just, yeah, I guess I don't know where to go from here, but it's, yeah, that's yeah. Well, I I totally I totally agree and I understand that and that's a very, you know, widespread sort of feeling right now, particularly when you're online and and the troubles, the issues seem to just be so overwhelmingly large and widespread and intractable. It can it's very difficult, you know, and this is one of the reasons why on Revelleft and other other places where I do work, I I go back to our history. I look at the history of the left in this country and abroad, but particularly this country that's been completely eradicated from mainstream consciousness. And yeah. you look at you look at organizations like the um, the Communist Party in like the 30s and 40s, or the Black Panther Party in the late 60s and early 70s, and we see models that have gotten to a to a certain level. They've advanced the ball for our class. They acted as mechanisms by which to bring people in and get them active activated in the right ways and to politically educate them. One of the reasons why. Uh, trade unionism was decimated with the introduction of neoliberalism under Thatcher and Reagan was in part because trade unions were the the educational sort of schools for working class consciousness. They served as the mechanism while you're sitting next to people eight hours a day. You can make these complicated arguments about you know surplus value and about what it why why this struggle is happening and what the bosses want, etc. On that's been decimated in part to take away that ability for working class people to raise their consciousness. And and plus you have you know decades of Cold War propaganda and anti-communist rhetoric that is just at home in the Democratic Party as it is in the Republican Party. Yeah. And and those things, those historical forces, they were set in motion for a reason and we're still living in the in the legacy of that. So in a lot of ways, even though we have these these prior historical uh, things to learn from and be inspired by, we're really starting from scratch trying to rebuild from the ruins of, you know, 50 plus years of of Cold War propaganda and the decimation of, of, of mechanisms of working class power. So it's not a pretty uh, it's not a pretty place that we're at right now, but there's still a lot of hope precisely because of what Hannah was gesturing towards, which is this broadening of awakening among American mm-hmm. people, you know. Yeah, exactly. And something I thought of while you were talking is um, I did listen to that um, first episode of Guerrilla History with PJ Prashad. Mm. Uh, so I enjoyed that. And I, I remember the discussion of like the AFL CIA and how like <laughs> you know um it, even the labor uh movement to some extent i mean maybe not earlier during the time of FDR but certainly in the cold war era um even the labor movement was anti-communist and i think we can we can probably go into talking about kind of uh where we're at with uh the american public understanding socialism because of you know Bernie Sanders had, became a household name pretty quickly, uh, starting with like the 2016 primaries. Um, and that's kind of the notion of socialism that's most familiar to a lot of Americans is like uh, what what Sanders and AOC would call democratic socialism, what I would call social, demo- social democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we can get into talking about kind of some of the basics of, you know, what socialism is. And I think... A good way to start is like the definition I've always heard uh, was, you know, when the workers own and control the means of production. So do you think that's kind of a good place to start in terms of understanding socialism? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a good place to start. And this is the the sort of trouble of being on the left is that 
it's it's a lot to work against. It's a lot to explain. It's a lot to talk about. Some on the left, on the Marxist left, on the anarchist left, they'll look at AOC and Bernie and they'll, you know, sort of sort of shit on them and be like, you know, that's not real socialism. And I understand that urge. You know, we do need to we do need to advance real definitions of socialism. But at the same time, they're breaking down again some of this Cold War taboo built up around these terms. And so yeah. while they might not yeah. be a hundred percent in agreement with our definitions, they're in the minds of millions of people pushing them towards that word and then you know they'll start googling socialism and all of a sudden like a rev left episode will pop up in their podcast and we can take them from there but the way that i think a marxist uh should think of socialism and how it's always been treated on the marxist left at least is the 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 transitional period the historical process transitioning away from capitalism and toward communism and because that's a transitionary process based on the historical cultural economic variables in any given society at any given time it's not going to be easily digestible into some sort of check mark list right it's not like we can lay out a set of things and then check them off one by one and say now we have socialism socialism is taking what we have right now and trying to build towards a future of liberation, of egalitarianism, of true freedom, of what we would call communism, right? A classless, moneyless society of equals operating in cooperation. That's the long-term historical goal. And so I like to think of socialism dialectically as an unfolding historical process and not as a checklist of things that you have to meet in order to require and meet that definition. And Okay, go ahead. Sorry. That's beautiful, first of all. <laughs> Continuing. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was just going to say one more point about uh, the differences okay. between social democracy and, and anarchism and Marxism. Is You can see Marxism, the, the critique that Marx and Engels offered of the capitalist system, this, the first ever and, and still most comprehensive scientific critique of what capitalism actually is and how it actually operates, as the, the beginning of a, of a more – um, disciplined thinking left, but you have trajectories off that branch. You have revolutionary Marxism, right? Leninism, Maoism, etc. You have anarchism, which agreed with the Marxist critique of capital, but then disagreed with things like the state on, on how we can organize to get to a post-capitalist situation. And then you do have social democrats who were revisionists of some sort, right? They took Marxism, stripped of some of its revolutionary um, ideals and said, actually, we can achieve socialism through using the democratic institutions of bourgeois democracy and push in that direction. And so to think about social democracy, anarchism, and revolutionary Marxism as all being branches from this broader um, critique of capitalism that really started in earnest under Marx and Engels, I think is sort of helpful to, to understand the evolutionary lineages of these three predominant types of, of being left-wing in the modern world. Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, another issue that I was thinking about, obviously, it's a very like uh, prevalent issue on the left, which is kind of left unity between different tendencies. And um, we di I did put uh, an option for some of my Instagram users to ask questions. And there was a question about like, um, left unity and how can all of these uh, tendencies sort of get along and what do they have in common. So I was thinking personally, obviously, the opposition to capitalism and then worker empowerment and then things like being anti-fascist, anti-colonialist, um, anti-imperialist, and just wanting to have a system that kind of meets human needs by harnessing industry or, or whatever, because uh, there are different conceptions of that. But yeah, do you want to talk about kind of some common elements of 
of leftist perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, very often online, uh, people get bogged down in using these hyper sectarian micro, uh, you know, nuanced differentiations along the left spectrum as like identities they can they can adopt online. And so you see a lot of really unproductive sectarianism that's not actually based in trying to organize for a better world or to play defense against our enemies, but is really just a an expression of bourgeois individualism that takes the form of these like sort of subcultural identities online. And so I, I that's just worth pointing out before I get into to more of the details. But yeah, for me, left unity simply means working around the ideals that we share in the conditions we actually exist in. So, you know, an anarchist and a Marxist-Leninist will absolutely disagree on how best to organize people. Um, if we ever get even anywhere close to power, how best to wield that power, right? But those are things that we can argue about down the line. Right now, given the horrific conditions that we find ourselves in, anybody overemphasizing or fetishizing those differences is really acting as a hindrance for us to come together around our shared goals, which again, in this moment, is is worker power, it's anti-imperialism, it's getting kids out of cages, it's anti-fascism, right? Squaring off either in the streets on the front line against fascist formations who are becoming more emboldened or, you know, working behind the scenes to identify and out dangerous Nazis and and fascist in your community so that people in your community can be aware that these people exist and are operating within your community. We have a an entire set of things that we agree on. And so left unity is possible absolutely in this scenario, even if we have some theoretical disagreements. Those disagreements will hopefully become become relevant in the future precisely because I hope we'll get towards being able to wield power in the future where those questions yeah. of, of the state and, and how best to, to organize a national economy and stuff like that can actually be brought into the realm of relevant questions. But as of right now, there's no reason why even social Democrats and anarchists and Marxists and even progressives and liberals can't work together around sh- some of our shared goals. It's about being strategic, about it's doing politics, right? It's reaching out to people who you don't agree with on every single issue, but you agree with on some core issues and doing meaningful work on those core issues. Absolutely. And um, this kind of gets me thinking about kind of the situation we're in now where um, the election is kind of just a clusterfuck. And uh, I mean, there's, there's, you know, notions of like a, a coup attempt by by Trump and then my my kind of hot take on this whole thing is if if people remember the history of like Russia gate after the 2016 elections it's pretty clear that the intelligence community and kind of the political establishment more broadly opposes uh, the Trump administration and I'm kind of imagining kind of this uh, counter coup by the CIA. I, I don't even know this is why it's a hot take, but uh, <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts on kind of the, the struggle for power that we're seeing now in the election? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what this represents is the the infighting of the American ruling class, right? Both parties are parties of capital. They're extensions of the overall ruling order. And, you know, in Marxist jargon, we would call it the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, right? The dictatorship of that class, which owns and operates the means of production. And both parties are wholly captured subsidiaries 
of that. But it's important to not be conspiratorial. And one thing that makes our critiques of the ruling class so different from conspiratorial thinking is that people that are conspiratorial tend to think of the ruling class as some like homogenous branch with like shadowy figures in a smoke filled room, you know, dictating which way things go. And I think elections like this and just the American political scene broadly shows no, our rulers are incompetent assholes and idiots that are just as fractured, just as just as confused, just as desperate as 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 they look. And what Trump and the Biden administration, what the what you were pointing about the intelligence agencies, what it all represents is these deepening fractures within the ruling class about how to move forward. One thing that has been proven and is continuing to be proven is that we should not leave the governing of our lives up to these vampires. And yep. I don't care if that vampire has a weird, creepy Biden grin or a, <laughs> or a soulless Trump half smile. The fact is it's still the same system operating. And what Biden represents is the hope of returning to a normal where the plunder of the global south can continue unabated. Where the, where the funneling of wealth and resources from the bottom and middle can continue to be siphoned to the top, but do it with a happy PR face, right? Mm-hmm. With, 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 a, with a sense of competency. Um, and, and Trump represents just this sort of, this sort of id in the American psyche, this sort of like, um, it's, it's hard to even put a, a, a finger on it exactly what it is, but it's the most reactionary, blood-drenched elements of the American empire sort of m- manifesting in this macabre way. And, you know, Trump's vulgarity and, and, and the, 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 the dark forces in our society that line up behind him, I think, it are just as American, <laughs> if not more so, than, than the, yeah. the Biden-Harris PR happy face front. Uh, to the system. So yeah, understand the ruling class is deeply divided and fractious and don't deserve to govern us. And I think that goes a long way with understanding at least the basis of what's happening right now. Yes, exactly. Um, I, yeah, this election was really stressful for me because I, in what year was that? 2016, I voted for Hillary Clinton. I was, I don't know, how young I was pretty young but oh god and then now like everyone I feel I mean I feel like most of my friends are either socialists or liberals or the people that I like you know associate with so everyone's like celebrating like I woke up and saw that Biden won and just like continued to be depressed like (laughs) I was like oh god and like I don't know. It just felt like we like shifted into like another alternate reality. It was like just slightly different from the one we were in before. And I don't know, just managing all of my emotions about everything of like, I think, and I think that Matt and I have spoke on this, like in prior episodes too, there is like this huge sense of like grief and loss. I think that comes with, you know, being perhaps like, being a liberal and then like realizing that you know people like Obama or you know like you even spoke to like having the sense of hope with the Obama presidency and then like realizing over time that that person is a war criminal or like murdered millions of people and doesn't have our best interests at heart and actually has done all these horrible things or actually like isn't you know advancing these sort of initiatives that we need to be happening and I think it's just like There's, like, this, I think for me, inside of me, there's these, like, competing forces of, like, 
you know, to, to, to be revolutionary, I feel like you have to have a little bit of hope at least, Mm -hmm. and then also a little bit of energy. Um, and I think it's hard to not be depressed by when you realize that like the democratic party and like, we seem to be faced with only two options. And then you realize that all the options that exist are garbage or like at least just a different face of the same monstrosity. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, yeah. okay, like, so realizing that is pretty intense. And then like trying to like turn that emotion into like motivation or like momentum of some kind. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, what, no, I, yeah. I love that. And it made me think of the, the Gramsci quote, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. So, you know, you, you look yeah. around and with your conscious mind, you see how dark things are, but you fight regardless. And if you look back to, the, you know, history and see all the people, the people that resisted Nazi occupation, the people yeah. who, the indigenous people who resisted European colonialism, <laughs> the slaves who resisted the, the, the transatlantic slave trade, these this is our history in the sense that this is the fight, the protracted historical fight for liberation from all forms of oppression. And we're just playing our humble role at this crucial moment not only in the crossroads for our country but the crossroads for our species with climate change barreling down on us and one thing i really wanted to to carry forward hannah that that you made me think of is one it's worth pointing out just how i mean you know aside from whatever if you're a liberal or you believe in the democrats or not just the trauma that we've collectively gone through over not only the i mean the past four years etc but just the last you know, seven, 10 months from this pandemic. The, yeah. I, I think there is such a thing as collective psychology and we are all suffering in our own ways. And a lot of times people will tune that out and, and not address it and escape it. But, you know, sometimes I'll find myself just like tears rolling down my eyes yeah. and, and thinking like so many fucking people are in pain right now. People yeah. are suffering so goddamn much. And I think it behooves us to at least address that in ourselves and see that in a lot of ways, regardless of why you're grieving, we're traumatized. I mean, we're a traumatized population. We're a grieving population and the pandemic is just getting started. I mean, shit is dark. You know, we think about America and everything it says it is. And then we see this pandemic come and the pandemic is like, okay, you know, you say you're this wonderful country with with one of the greatest pandemic responses in history, and you have more money than any society in human history ever has. Can you deal with this pandemic? And absolutely not. Every contradiction yeah. of our society was unmasked. Our society was revealed for what it actually is, which is this oinking death cult. And uh, it's it's absolutely horrifying to see where things are going. And I just wanted to, to just just make that point that people are really suffering and it's not only on the individual level, it's also on the collective level. Mm-hmm. And to be able to tap into that as people on the left trying to form narratives and tell stories about our history and our present, I think it's important to reach people in their heart, not just their mind, but mm-hmm. you know, touch this human element that we're all going through. And I think that that goes a long way in breaking down some of the intellectual taboos that have, put, that have been put up around leftism and socialism. And just saying, like, we want to help people. We want people not to suffer and die. We want people not to have to live under bridges in the richest society that uh, that human species has ever known. We want people not to be go go bankrupt when they get cancer and have to go to the hospital. Like, we want a world that is better for everybody. We don't want to quote unquote kill a hundred million people, like the psychos yeah. on the right and center always tell us that. That's what we want. So 
I don't know. It's it's there's no easy answers on that mental health front, but yeah, God damn, there's a lot of suffering right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's so painful for everyone, and like, I know I am just kind of paranoid on a daily basis, just going outside, and I can only imagine what more vulnerable people go through. Um, but another thing, um, I wanted to touch on is kind of like this process of neoliberalism and how, you know, it, it happens to be the Trump administration in power during the pandemic, but the sort of material conditions that paved the way for this disaster have been, you know, the privatization of public uh, services. And there's this Jacobin article by Megan Day that talks about hospitals closing over the last several decades because they weren't profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this whole trajectory of privatization and just the further commodification of human need that I think we need to think about and kind of, uh, it's just one of the aspects of people uh, coming to this rude awakening, seeing that, you know, Biden has won the election and people being excited about that initially. And then looking at the policies, uh, the record of Biden and the Democratic Party more broadly, and just kind of, as as you mentioned, Brett, the dictatorship of, of the bourgeoisie and how the two-party system is basically like the the capitalist kind of uh, political apparatus. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something we can maybe touch on. I, I know Hannah and I did an episode on on Biden's record already, so people know uh, if you're wondering why leftists oppose the, oppose the Democratic Party. That's a, we we go for Biden's record. So, but yeah, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, it's important to understand that neoliberalism arose out of a crisis of capitalism after the end of the post-war boom. You had falling rates of profits around the world, and neoliberalism was yet another adaptation that capitalism took in order to continue on. And of course, at the head of that was right-wingers like Reagan and Thatcher. But after the 80s, the Democratic Party um, basically, you know, they switched over and they became, they, they abandoned organized labor as their core base and the core interest they pursue. And they went towards bringing in affluent professional class suburbanites and pandering to Wall Street. And they called this you know, the, the Clintonism, third way neoliberalism, right? The uh, the Atari Democrats, yeah. they saw Reagan's success and they said, you know, we should take we should pick up huge portions of, of Reagan's platform and run with it. And this is partially not conspiratorial thinking of the Democrats in the back saying, yes, and in 40 years, it'll be terrible, perfect for us. You know, it's just it's just the processes that capitalism um, partakes in as it unfolds historically. And then the political system, since it is the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, internalize those values values and then promulgate them. So we see after 40 years since Reagan in this country, just a steady, brutal decline of living standards for the poor and the working class. And the 90s Democrats came along, utterly skewed them in favor of this this new suburbanite affluent um, upper middle class uh, as their main base. And so workers got completely left behind. And every president, left or right since then, has continued this denigration. And what does that do? Well, it radically rips apart the stability of the country. It takes people's jobs who for generations relied on them not only for income but for a sense of Mm self-worth. It decimates labor unions. It decimates our ability to even have collective institutions anymore. If everything can be privatized, if everything is just on the market for sale, then even your own individual being becomes something that you have to promote as – 
a mechanism of making your ends meet. And there's no collective social safety net out there to catch you if you fall through the cracks. And so we see we see the legacy of 40 years of neoliberalism. And then you look at somebody like Biden and you see like, oh, wow. He is just going to continue to create the conditions that gave us a Trump. After eight years yeah. of o- Obama's brutal neoliberalism, we got a Trump. And people are disaffected with this entire society, but at least the Republicans play to a huge chunks of this society's cultural grievances, right? Whiteness, guns, abortion, respecting the flag. When, when, our, when our political system can no longer actually deliver materially for people, all that is left is for politics to become this empty vehicle of cultural grievance. And so yeah. both, both the Democrats and the Republicans refuse to actually meet anybody's economic interests. And so politics now is just a culture war. And inequality is soaring through the roof, homelessness, um, people struggling to get by. Now you have this pandemic with no help, right? We got $1,200 from the richest government in human history. And then they said, okay, now you're threw us to the wolves. You know, now you're on your own. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a crime against humanity, what we're dealing with. And Biden is just going to, because they literally can't think outside the confines of, of neoliberalism. He will just continue to entrench the very conditions that give rise to a Trump. And the next Trump won't be a bumbling narcissistic dumbass, but will actually be, you know, as I often say, a snake that doesn't blink a fascist that knows how to harness <sighs> harness the powers that Trump harnessed, but push them it more competently in the direction that the far right and the very rich elites want to go. Um, so yeah, I mean, in, until we break out of this cycle, until we have some movement, whether inside or outside the institutions of America that stand up and not only fight militantly for working class interests, but actually deliver on them, we're going to continue th- this sort of death spiral uh, here in the U.S. And for the for the far left, the the left, you know, the, the most underrepresented people in our society politically, um, us, right. All we can do is take care of each other. We know the government's not coming to help us. We know the government's not going to solve any of our problems. All that's left in the face of that complete abandonment by the state is for us to engage in mutual aid projects, Mm -hmm. to engage in community defense formations, to make sure that we take care of each other because nobody else is coming to save us. It's scary, but at the same time, it allows the opportunity for true political autonomy for people to to take into their own hands and and for communities to take into their own hands the needs of their neighbors and the people that surround them and start helping each other and i think we'll continue to see that develop alongside the horror show of of the death spiral of american politics yeah definitely um can <laughs> sorry. i it's kind of dark but <laughs> no yeah it's, it's true though it's, it's terrifying <laughs> go ahead hannah um that made me think like something that I wanted to bring up to you, Brett, um, as well, this kind of like, so let me see how to like phrase this. So like with mutual aid, I feel like there's this, I guess I didn't realize how individualistic I had been brainwashed to be. And I think it, it's like a common problem for a lot of people. Like we live in an individualistic society and especially like, if you're white and grew up, you know, in America, I feel like people don't even like understand what collectivism is on like a very basic level. Um, so I think being faced with all of these new notions of like mutual aid and things like that, you're trying to unlearn 
basically your entire life of understanding what it means to be a human being in relation to other human beings. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that, especially in like my own journey with like trying to develop into a mental health professional and just this basis of like relationships between people is like the basis of just existing. Um, so trying to like learn how to be a person in this new way is pretty difficult, but um, I guess I, I'm trying to like tie in multiple things here because I think it all makes sense to me. But I, so I listened to the episode on Rev Left about liberation theology. So I've just been thinking a lot about like the intersection of spirituality and then like compassion and how that is like sort of this like socialist psychological thing that you like try that you have to basically develop as you're fighting for the like rights and needs of everyone and it goes like deeper than just like you said there's like you know reaching to the hearts of people there's a difference between like intellectually being like oh yeah like reading the communist manifesto or whatever versus like trying to unlearn years and years of individualism and think about like you know, I'm going to sit down and meditate for like 10 minutes and remember that like we are all collectively connected and how that's actually like super tied into, you know, or, you know, whatever sort of like spiritual or religious thing that you connect with. Um, I think we're a pretty like empty society mm. and like everyone's alone. So I think that like, or people feel that way. So I think those things are like connected. I don't know. What do you, how Absolutely. do you feel on that? Yeah. No, I, I love the question. I, I, this is something I think about so much and something I, I, I try to do a lot of work on. Um, and I'll, first I want to touch on, on evolution. So you think about human beings, you know, where did we come from? Why did we survive? Why did we rise to be the, the dominant species on, on this entire planet? It's not because we're super strong. It's not because we have ferocious teeth and claws, right? It's precisely because we were hyper-social. Our cooperative ability our, and, and the deepening necessity be, due to lack of all those other things created not only our, our need to be communal, but it's the very basis of like language, right? Our, our language was an, a, an evolutionary need to communicate with one another on increasingly subtler and subtler planes to cooperate as effectively as we needed to. So, you know, it's, it's extra ironic when people say, oh, capitalism is just human nature because mm -hmm. capitalism is antithetical to human nature. And one of the ways we know that is we can look at the skyrocketing states of depression and anxiety yeah. and obsessive compulsive disorder in our society. If capitalism was just synonymous with human nature, then we would not see these byproducts of human suffering so clearly all over our society. So no, capitalism is antithetical to what makes yeah. us healthy. And one of the ways that manifests, as you beautifully stated, was this hyper-individualism and the hyper-atomization that comes with it. And that works to, that works 
really well on the left to undermine any sense of solidarity and cooperation because there's so many people drenched in individualism that having done little to no organizing and little to no study don't have the humility to, to stand back and say maybe I should learn but it's like these are my ideas and this is why you're wrong I'm not mm-hmm. talking to you anymore you're friends with that person you should block I mean this is how hyper individualism manifests on the left and undermines our struggles to move forward but that's breaking down in the face of a lot of this and mutual aid is one way that we do it so to the second part of your question about spirituality you know not only is there this deep thirst in our society for like stability and and having our needs met and this end of widespread suffering but there is a deep spiritual thirst in our society people want to connect they want to unify around something and when society gives you no other mechanisms to do that a lot of people will group up on 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 politics and that can take the form of liberatory projects like mutual aid and left-wing stuff or it can take the form of like hyper violent machismo drenched right-wing formations you know but it the proud boys i mean they're wholly disgusting fascist formation but for them what did they start off as they started off as like a men's club where they agreed not to masturbate and they turned in to a fucking fascist <laughs> formation on the right yeah. but still they're finding community i mean you can go to a bar with a bunch of dumbasses and drink beer and talk shit and that's something it's it's, right. it's more of a community than anything else on offer in our society so you see this all across the political spectrum and what, why I place so much emphasis on, on Buddhist meditation, particularly, although meditation practice themselves is not confined to any one religion, there are mystical traditions in Islam, you know, Sufism, there's mm-hmm. Christian mystics, there's Kabbalism under Judaism. So the, the practice itself of, of uni, unifying with the cosmos and, and the people around you from the inside out is, is a long standing human project that, that manifests in these different contexts. But what meditation allows for is the the in, internal disillusion of the illusion that yeah. you're separate you know yeah. that's you, that's you're fundamentally separate and you can keep the world out there out there and that you're on the inside and so meditative practice is a way that you not only intellectualize about these things you know like oh i know that i'm fundamentally connected to everything around me and i should care more and all that that's intellectualizing about it meditation is the raw direct mechanism Mm -hmm. by which you strip away that illusion from the inside out and you start to genuinely viscerally experientially feel yourself to be inextricably connected to all life around you and and that that profound shift is i think something that we need to do and that politics in and of itself is incapable of doing it can get us partially there certainly there's forms of political communalism like all these mutual aid projects we're talking about that can get us there on some front but to get it from the inside out to do that personal inner work i think complements beautifully that external political work and it's something that i'm trying to spread across the left because it it satiates that spiritual thirst and it it satiates that desperate internal need for connection Something I thought of while you were talking is um, just kind of based on the individualistic culture in the U.S., um, obviously a, a byproduct of kind of capitalism more broadly. Um, I think one thing 
that kind of cements that ideology of individualism and of uh, kind of preventing empathy and and compassion is kind of just this notion of like anti-communist propaganda that we briefly mentioned. Um, so it, it's kind of very anti-collectivist. Um, and so I think we could shift gears a little if you want and, and kind of go through a little bit about the history of kind of anti-communism. A lot of people know there was McCarthyism, which demonized people who in some cases weren't even communists. Um, there was obviously the Cold War and obviously the phrase that you'll often hear is history is written by the victors. So we're basically getting, um, I recently read a Walter Rodney book on the Russian revolution and he distinguishes between like, um, bourgeois historians and Marxist historians. So I think that's a good way to think of kind of the upbringing you get in a capitalist society and the sort of narrative that is, uh, perpetuated in in regards to communism and socialism so when we're talking about this indoctrination you know it, it it sort of flies in the face of individualism because one of the things that that liberal capitalism does is shroud itself in objectivity so you know ideology is used as a term of denigration for people with ideas that exist outside of the liberal capitalist static uh, status quo you know it's sort of a, a, a pejorative thing to, to launch at people oh, you're too ideological but ideology is is much more subtle than that and the marxist conception of ideology is this sort of nefarious insidious indoctrination with ideas that you passively absorb in a society as you are raised and socialized in that society and so one of the ways this manifests that everybody listening will probably be familiar with is these arguments like communism killed 100 million people or capitalism is human nature or communism looks good on paper but when in practice it's terrible right everybody yeah. that that vomits out these ideas they're vomiting them out with the internal sensation that they came to those conclusions themselves, right? They're right. saying them as if they are the product of critical independent thinking, and they really feel inside often that those conclusions are their own. And then when you start to apply any pressure on those ideas, you you see the whole facade sort of fall apart, whether they admit it or not. So ideology is this very subtle indoctrination that I think brilliantly – allows people to espouse ideas that are not their own while feeling as if they are. And, and, and that is that is very prevalent um, in, in our society with these sort of knee-jerk reactions to anything even resembling um, a leftward shift or, or leftward progressive uh, a movement in our society. And, and one of the day, one of the ways that hyper individualism, right, which is necessary for market competition, right? We're all individuals, self-interested, um, rational agents on the marketplace trying to get by, right? Individualism is an ideology that lends itself perfectly to capital. Whereas collectivism is something that resists capitalism. One of the ways that individualism manifests is in this this pandemic where you see the need for millions of Americans to 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 think about others for once, right? Okay, yeah. Hey, this is a crazy pandemic. It's it's historical, it's it's scary, it's killing people. Literally all you have to do to to do like 90% of the work is just wear a mask and social distance, please. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Half the country says, fuck no. Half the country then says, yeah. not only am I not wearing a mask, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a show 
of not wearing the mask. I'm going to purposefully go out to, you know, crowded bars or crowded Trump rallies or whatever it may be without a mask to show that I don't care. And then when you ask them, why are you doing this? Well, it's my right. It's my liberty. It's Mm -hmm. my freedom. So when asked desperately to just care about others or to just think about others for a fucking second, yeah. it's, 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 it's entrenched in, in at least half of the country to just not be able to do that. And even when you put pressure on it, that's what I say, like the arguments, they, they, they give away the game. It's, it's me, my, my right, my liberty. Well, it's not about you. This is a pandemic. We're all inherently connected. You being an asshole and going out and getting it and then spreading it to others affects the lives and liberty of the people around you. But that, that level of rather elementary communal thinking is just stripped out of the minds of so many people. And that is a direct result of the ideological capture of the American mind by the values and norms of capitalism, one of them being hyper-individualism. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's interesting that um, in the U.S. it's kind of like the epitome of, uh, as as Reagan, I think, said, the the government, the governs the best is the government, the governs least, or something like that. So we're seeing like free market capitalism with a, a lack of government action in the face of this devastating pandemic. And then what you get from basically the mainstream media is that other countries are authoritarian for, uh, for instance, China for um, <laughs> coming up with a very successful response to the pandemic and obviously Cuba and Vietnam. Vietnam has one of the lowest death rates in the world from uh, COVID-19. Obviously these are um, socialist or or communist countries. Um, Do you want to talk about kind of this notion of centralized governments uh, being called authoritarian? It's really, it's another example of ideology and, and the rhetoric that it spawns authoritarianism means very little when you actually look at the facts, right? America loves to call other countries authoritarian. Meanwhile, on a per capita and overall basis, America has more people locked in cages than any other country on earth. You know, Americans who say communism killed 100 million people, American government alone killed well over 100 million people. That was just the genocide to clear land for the political project of liberal capitalism, let alone the countless deaths that we're that we're we've been through and we're still going through. I mean, right now in the U.S., a 9/11 worth of dead Americans are piling up every two days, and it's precisely the patriots, the people who love America more than anybody in the whole world, that are smiling and giving the thumbs up to it and acting like it's not that big of a deal. Um, our our entire daily lives are structured by forces that we don't control. We talk about authoritarianism. When you go into the workplace, they tell you what to wear. They tell yep. you when to show up. They tell you when and how to interact with the people around you. You go home. Your landlord tells you to pay rent. You know. Um. You know. You're you're struggling to get by. None of none of the things that happen in the average working person's day is dictated or even have democratic input from that person. So authoritarianism is just another empty word that can be thrown around for the geopolitical interests of the American working class, and it's never accompanied with any deep dive into what that actually means. And so it obviously serves the interests of anybody who wants to maintain not only the status quo within our borders, but global hegemony of the United States imperialist machine the world over, because those other nations – 
who do things differently than us are authoritarian and evil. And of course, it's always with a healthy dose of Orientalism, right? The people yeah. in these, these countries yeah. are brainwashed automaton who just follow mindlessly the the dictates of their rulers, you know. And here in America, oh, we're not like that, are we? So, you know, <laughs> this ideology really entrenches itself on that front. And um, and then you see people on the left parroting these the same rhetoric. And, and that's incredibly harmful when you start seeing people who are ostensibly on the left calling other nations, particularly those that are socialist, authoritarian. Um, it, it, really, it really feeds into to the entire narrative that the U.S. imperial apparatus pushes. And it, you know, in this time, particularly, uh, and going forward with climate change and everything, internationalism is essential. Like, we have to understand yeah. that I, I'm not yeah. an American. I'm a human being. And the working class person in China, a working class person in Africa, a working class person anywhere in the world has more of my common interests and my children's interests long term than the ruling class of my own country. And so anything on the left or anywhere else that 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 denigrates internationalism and fetishizes nationalism, which is always the underside of, of denigrating internationalism, I think works in the exact opposite opposite direction that even some of those people think it's working in, you know? And, and so you have to understand yeah. the, the conditions and the context in which you're talking. And if you're on the left, picking up these words and mindlessly using them to denigrate other countries serves interests that you're not even conscious of. And so, and so you should be aware of that. But yeah, I mean, we live in an authoritarian state. We have a ruling yeah. class that, that has two parties with the same fundamental interests. We have no democratic say in how our daily lives are structured. We have no daily say in, in the imperial apparatus and its machinations around the world. We are completely, completely subjugated in, in, in so many different ways. Um, but that ideology comes in and says, no, you're actually radically, totally free. And it's those other people, often in the global south, often that don't look like you. Those are the authoritarians. We've got to watch out for them. So wave that American flag, you know, because we need to go to war with China now because they're authoritarians. I mean, that, 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 whole, yeah. that whole downstream effect of, of that ideological rhetoric, I think, really needs to be examined. I think yeah, and. Oh, go ahead. I think it reminds me of, like, I mean, just literally as you started talking, Brett, I was reminded of, like, and this was, like, also part of my early, like, radicalization, even as, like, a kid of seeing, I don't even remember when I did, but seeing the movie Food, Inc., which, looking back, I don't know if it probably has its own issues, but, like, just realizing um, there was, like, a scene in it where somebody's walking down the aisle in the grocery store, and they're talking about the illusion of choice. Mm. So there's, like, this idea that, like, there's all these products and you get to choose based on all these different things. What's your favorite brand? Like, what's going to be most healthy for you based on all of these things that are basically just, like, lies, essentially, mm -hmm. or, or they're all coming from the same source. Um, so I think that that kind of, like, feels like an analogy for the American way of life where, like, you get to choose which, which college you go to, but you don't get to choose the fact that you're going to be in debt for, like, the next 20 years. Like, yeah. so it seems like you're you know, at every step of the way, like what you buy, like what you do, where you work, everything feels like you're kind of like designing your own future and like you're paving your path. Mm. And yet there's like all of these forces in play that are like, essentially, like you said, like oppressing you, making you suffer, separating you from other people. And like, you don't get to choose any of that. That's all going to happen to you no matter what you choose, but we're going to make you feel like you're like designing your future and that mm -hmm. you're in control 
and that you have this quote unquote freedom that like people in other countries don't. Whereas like you have the choice whether or not you, you know, there's like the illusion that you have the choice whether or not you end up homeless or you end up, you know, working a steady job. And it just doesn't feel, I guess that goes back to also the idea of like individual responsibility where you're like in a system that's extremely precarious. And then it's like, if you get fucked over by that system, it's your fault because you yep. should have done X, Y, Z. You should have worked harder. You should have saved money when you have, like, all of these forces just, like, pushing you, essentially, to the margin. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. it's not a – there's not – freedom is just such a cultural – it's just not a real – term and the way people use it yeah that's one of, that's one of the more nefarious aspects of the society is that it it really forces people to in, internalize failures of the system as failures of their individual selves and yep. you know whatever you think about a bernie sanders campaign when he, when he would say stuff like are you willing to, to fight for the person next to you or when he would stand up and say it's not that you're failed that you failed that you lost your job or you can't afford health care these are systemic issues and our entire society is geared toward making you internalize those systemic failures as individual ones. And that precisely allows the, the system to, to continue. Um, so that's an incredibly important thing. And then your, your great point about illusion of choice. You know, I think it was like last year on Twitter, somebody went to Cuba and they, they took a picture of like, you know, a whole aisle of only one brand of like toilet paper or whatever the hell it was, you know? And they're yeah. like, oh, look at this is communist tyranny. You know, I only have one choice. And so that's the trade-off is like, yes, you can have here in America – you know, a hundred different choices of deodorant and cereal and, and toothpaste, but you can't have healthcare. And if you want to yeah, get an education, you're going to have $60,000 of debt, but yeah. you are free to choose between McDonald's and Burger King. Absolutely. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then the, I, on, on taking that even deeper into the ideological front, you know, Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent is a really great way to understand how the illusion of choice and the ideology and all these different strains we've been talking about so far, how they really meet. Um, and, and reading that book, manufacturing consent, I think will really help fill out the, the, the blank parts of this page that we're talking about and, and unite a lot of these ties because it is precisely that illusion of like robust political argument between MSNBC and Fox news that gives the illusion of like, well, actually there's political freedom. We all, you know, there's these, widespread ideas you can be a liberal or you can be a conservative or you can be a centrist but in reality it's a very narrow tiny slice of the political spectrum that's allowable uh, in in the mainstream and that's just one of the many ways that the system brilliantly in a lot of ways like we have to yeah. give it up <laughs> capitalism is brilliant at adapting it's yeah. one of the ways where it progresses and, and extends its lifespan absolutely um yeah and something i was just thinking of was um related to this notion of authoritarianism and this notion of freedom. Um, first of all, uh, just to look at the the workplace that you go to every day, um, this is something that Professor Richard Wolff uh, really articulates well, which is kind of the tyranny of punching into you know a dictatorship every day and there's a CEO and a board of directors and some upper management. They make all the decisions. So this is why one of the things we say um, is that capitalism is kind of incompatible with democracy. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. And then something else is just the um, the way that kind of, as we were talking about, global South countries, especially socialist ones, are called authoritarian. We have to remember that this is coming from 
literally capitalist institutions like the mainstream media. Um, so just something to think about in terms of, I know Venezuela is a, is a hot topic because um, conservatives and even some liberals will, will mention Venezuela, not even anything about it. They'll just say Venezuela. And that's like a, <laughs> that's, that's like debunking uh, socialism or something. So, so just remember, I mean, maybe we could mention it a little bit, but just remember that these claims are coming from capitalist news sources and they are usually debunked within sometimes a few days, sometimes a few years, sometimes declassified CIA documents will come out decades later. But I mean, it's something to look into for, for leftists, just remember where, where your sources, uh, the interests of your sources, I guess. Yeah. And, and just to, to make one point off what you said too, about capitalism and democracy, one thing to keep in mind is that Wherever there is wealth inequality, there will, by definition, also be political inequality. And insofar as capitalism is this pr producer of radical inequality, right? We, we see in every capitalist system people sleeping under bridges and some people with 10 houses. Wherever that inequality exists, they're all, that, that will be transformed immediately into political inequality. So you can either have capitalism or you can have democracy, but you cannot have both. And one of the greatest victories of liberalism was to convince you that not only can you have both, but they're actually synonymous. The freer the market, the freer the people, right? These sort of sloganeerings yeah. really trying to convince you that if you don't have capitalism, you literally can't have democracy when the truth is the exact opposite, which is so much of the society we live in is this upside down, topsy-turvy world. Like, even like make America great again, right? The people that really are patriots and they believe that Trump is making America great again. Trump, if, if you believe in the American project and you believe in American institutions and shit, Trump is like the worst thing for America ever. Yeah. Like, he's destroying all these right. institutions and norms. He's shedding doubt on our elections. He's overseeing the mass death of hundreds of thousands of your fellow Americans. And that is making America great again and keeping America great. And I could talk forever about this but so much of our society is the exact opposite as what it's presented to us as and and keeping an eye for that and sharpening your eye to see that i think is is important another another jump example that jumps to mind is uh the, the trump supporters like fuck your feelings and snowflakes and yeah. heard all that rhetoric in 2016 <laughs> and suck it up buttercup he's your president you know all this stuff and then trump right loses a fair election and they go apoplectic and so far do they actually deny reality and say actually my my leader is still really the president you know the only way you run you won is because you stole it with all these illegal votes so they're the exact thing that they claim to hate i mean the the, the trump base and and trump's entire political project is 100% rooted in nothing but pure grievance crybaby nonsense all the time that the right would never put up with if it came from any Democrat's mouth. Like, imagine if Obama oversaw the death of 240,000 Americans and then refused to leave when he lost an election. What would the right be doing? You know, and so that's just another yeah. another way that this, this world, this this country, is so is so topsy turvy. It's it's on its head. Everything everything is the exact opposite is what it's presented to be. Yeah, definitely. And I guess I would say, just in terms of the the phenomenon of Donald Trump, it's it's kind of like. The unmasking of this like extreme privilege mixed with like the colonial sort of uh, white supremacist nature of of America as as an entity, and it's it's just really it's like I don't know it it's so pathetic with to see these people just marching around like you know, with their beer bellies and and 
AR-15s. Like, like, what are you going to do about the situation? Like, I mean, I always, I, I like the the Mao quote: "The uh, reactionaries are paper paper tigers," mm-hmm. because they're just they're very very much cowards, and it's all it's all talk. Yep, but it is, it, yeah, it is an expression of kind of the the actual history of the United States. But yeah, go ahead. Totally. And, and that, that Mao quote, reactionaries are paper tigers, I think it's perfectly distilled in how the American right does violence. Because, you know, as, as much as these guys pretend to be be these tough guys and fuck Black Lives Matter and all this stuff, they never go into, like, you know, black neighborhoods of low-income yeah. people and try to square off, right? When, when, when the right engages in political violence, it's always in the form of cowardice. It's always terrorist attacks against unsuspecting people who can't fight back. That's from the Klan all the way to Timothy McVeigh blowing up the 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 OKC building with a daycare on the bottom floor to incel attacks to mass shootings the right is full of cowardice and their machismo posturing is precisely an outgrowth of their the insecurity um, that they have around their own masculinity and so any sort of armed resistance any sort of collective resistance to their bullshit pushes them back immediately they want defenseless people to attack you know and racist attacks on the street or you know like a that one psycho in portland who like was talking shit to these two teenage girls and three guys stood up to defend them he's like hurling racial slurs at these at these two um um, women of color who were teenagers and the three guys in the bus stood up and he just pulled out a knife and stabbed them all in the fucking neck and shit like these people are cowards and they they manifest that cowardice through how they actually do political violence, you know, like the Trump guy sending bombs to Democrats and, and all this stuff. So understanding that reactionaries are paper tigers and that, that makes them in some ways more dangerous, right? Cause they're more likely to attack people who aren't prepared to fight back or who aren't accepting it. Like the Tulsa massacre, another great example from American history where a, a city of, of black people, a part of the city were doing really well. You had black wall street. There was actually developing autonomy for black people people in the south no less right and what happened this cowardice ambush attack with with weapons and planes and bombings just devastating and slaughtering people who weren't even expecting to go to war that day so all of the the entire history of american right-wing violence is steeped in cowardice and that's worth pointing out not that it makes them less dangerous but just that all their posturing is just that posturing and it's always rooted in deep deep insecurity and deep deep entitlement Yes, absolutely. Hannah, did you have something to add? I've just been thinking about, like, I mean, the whole, like, school shooting situation. As I was getting a little bit older, because I think Matt and I had conversations about, like, gun control and whatnot. And I think at a certain point I was like, and I don't know if I was, like, reading articles or if I was just, like, thinking to myself. And I was like, it's, like insecure lonely white men mm-hmm. who like they're just like reacting against like not having things that they think they're entitled to a lot of times like with a lot of those shooters like you know like the girls don't want me I can't get a girlfriend or whatever it might be um, but I think it's there's just a lot of violence that comes from that sort of masculinity complex um especially like white masculinity in our country and i think people just don't see it that way um especially with like the whole racist notion that like terrorism looks a certain way um and that you just see like so much domestic terrorism um from the far right and 
I don't know, it's just been like an interesting trajectory for like my own brain and understanding that that's actually what's happening versus, you know, if people didn't have guns, then they couldn't, you know, I don't know. It's Yeah, but I, I think this is, it kind of makes me think about kind of um, the liberal versus the leftist uh, response to kind of like gun violence. Uh, I think liberals, uh, as with other issues, they kind of want to patch up the problems and not look at the systemic issues. And I think that um, some of the gun violence, or most of it, I guess I would say, is this kind of hyper-masculinity mixed with the deteriorating material conditions, the the mental health issues of yeah. uh, people, obviously the incels and stuff like that. And then I guess I would say just to mention that... Uh, <laughs> Leftists are generally pro-gun. It's it's a little different in the in the U.S. because of our history of um, the left being conflated with liberal ideas and sort of a weird um, overlap there. But uh, the global the global socialist communist movement has always been very pro-gun, and it's it's really not a matter of you know how many guns there are or uh, those kinds of questions or background checks or all those things. It's kind of the material conditions as well as. I don't know, like the I think the Black Panther Party had a really good outlook of, of de escalation through yeah. through armed community defense and things like that. So I don't know. Do you wanna give your give your view on guns, Brett? Yeah, I mean I I mean I think it was again Mao who said, you know, we want a world without guns, but in order to get that we sometimes have to pick up the gun. And um yeah. when 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 all of your enemies from the fascists to the Nazis to the military industrial complex to the racist police in your community have endless guns it's like to not pick up the gun and to not at least have that as a as a resort of self-defense is a form of sort of suicide like you know it's it's like yeah i would want a world where there where there are no guns but in in america that pandora's box has already been flung open there's more guns than there literally are people in this society and most of those guns are collected and hoarded by a small very far right segment of our population and over the last few years you've seen that begin to to, to shift with things like the socialist rifle association you have gun clubs centered around oppressed identities like being trans or you know yeah. black communities coming together to pick up the gun and even go out and march and p- make a show of like yeah we have guns too and yeah. that's that gets back to the yeah. reactionaries or paper tigers they want all the guns and they want you not to have any and one of the funniest ways that this got manifested was during the black panthers right when you had the governor of california ronald reagan support gun law restrictions precisely <laughs> right. because it was the black Panthers coming to the, the state house with guns demanding basic equality and for the police to stop killing them or black Panthers following police around with guns, making sure they don't harass the people in their community. So in that context, you have to, you have to contextualize this stuff, understand there is no going back and it just makes rational, logical sense that if all of the absolute worst hogs in our society have guns, we should have them too. I know I do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, same here. I, I just recently got more into uh, learning about self-defense and community community defense. So I, yeah, I joined the, the SRA recently and purchased a handgun. So I'm I'm getting there. I, I went to the range a couple times with a comrade of mine. I got to try out a, a AR-15, so that was cool. Absolutely. But um, yeah, yeah. I don't know what else should say, we. I was gonna say as well. Like I over the summer went to a couple events. Um, one where I was just like helping serve food and like other marches as well. 
And there was the, you know, chapter where I live of the Black Panther Party and uh, I think one or two other community defense groups. And I was literally just like amongst these people who like looked super cool, first of all, and second of all, had these (laughs) giant guns and like vests on and these like cargo pants. And I was like, what is happening? And like, I don't know what they're called, like the other two groups, but like, I was just like, whoa, I didn't realize that this was a thing, that this is happening. And it's amazing that, I mean, especially, you know, in seeing the police violence, like as it continues and to know that like, maybe there's more groups like sprouting up as a, you know, defense reaction against that. But I guess I just didn't, and you know, part of it just being a white person, I didn't realize that these groups existed to protect like black communities and even like in the present day. So it was just a huge moment of like realization for me of how different, I guess our society can look and how these groups do provide the protection that's necessary against um, these quote unquote, you know, to protect and serve, like that's not happening. So exactly. And particularly when they they work hand in hand, as we've seen so much throughout this summer with the far right, the police and the far right are really two overlapping Venn diagrams and they assist each other and they're all heavily armed. And so, again, just another reason that we got to we got to pick up arms as a part of our community defense, but we can't fetishize them. Um, we, we, we can't make them the, 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 the sole focus of our political projects. We can't over glorify violence and, and bloodshed. That's not stuff yeah. that we want. We want to avoid yeah. all that, but we're also realistic and we live in the real world and we have people that we love and we, we're going to protect no matter what. I've been doxxed a few times by Nazis in, in pretty intense ways, got my address and my, my wife's you know parents' address and stuff posted up on neo-Nazi forums and shit. So yeah, Jesus. I'm armed. You, you come to my house, you threaten my family, I'm putting a hole through your chest, not because I love violence or I like to hurt people, the exact opposite, but because I realize that we live in this terrible, rotten society founded on settler colonial genocide and guns and violence and white, angry, reactionary violence is just literally part and parcel with the society I live in, and I have to, I have to maneuver accordingly. What about people who are, like, suicidal? They probably shouldn't have a gun. Mm-hmm. But they should also have a gun. So I'm like, I don't know where to really go with that aspect of like the mental health side of for people who might turn that on themselves. Yeah. Where do you I, see, I guess maybe community defense, like others having arms yeah, that's not for to everybody, protect definitely. like the vulnerable people who can't, I guess. Totally. And that's, I think that's also an extension and a call to, to, to broaden our entire project and to include stuff like, um, you know, mutual aid programs like what the Black Panthers did. They set up free health clinics. And we're seeing not only um, just having terrible health care in this society, but there's the complete lack of mental health care resources. Well, part of building dual power and part of doing mutual aid is providing those services in our communities to, to cut those problems off at the root as opposed yeah. to letting them get to the point where they have no other way out but to grab a gun. But I, yeah. even, even though these are my positions, 
positions. I'm not against like common sense gun restrictions. Like, yeah, you shouldn't be able to go to a neo-Nazi gun show and just buy a gun that nobody knows you have. And, and I don't think like some mentally deranged 19 year old white incel should just be able to go and and get a gun that easily. Like there's common sense restrictions, but there's also the realization that, as I said earlier, Pandora's box has already been flung wide open. Guns are already out. There's no mechanism. There's no possible policy that you can go around and take people's guns back. It's like, shit, this is just the world that we're living in and have to operate in as sad as it is. So that just also, like, as you say, though, it's really important to, to, to consider those, those cases as well and to do as much as we can within our communities to address those concerns before they get to that point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Great point. Um, I guess we are getting on to an hour and a half. I don't know um, if anybody else, any of y'all have anything else uh, you want to bring up. <clears throat> I think yeah. it's been a very good, yeah. very good conversation so far, but. I'm Do good. Push ups, buy a Do gun, drink <laughs> oh, yeah, some water, yeah. go to therapy, meditate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There's something, an inside joke from our from our podcast at the end, we just try to give out random advice <laughs> start, to people. Just start like <laughs> desperately listing things that people should do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I said watch comedy because you have to laugh to like you know keep oh. your. <laughs> I don't know, but um, but yeah, do you have anything to to wrap up with, Brett, in terms of just where people can find your your content or. Uh, Personally, I just saw one of the Rev Left T-shirts with uh, the White House on fire, which is really, ne- really cool. So yeah, check you. that out, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I had a say in uh, in creating that design, so I was really happy with how that idea got put into print. But yeah, if, if you if you want to find me, you can just go to revolutionaryleftradio.com. That has both of our sister shows, our Patreon, um, our shirts, all of that stuff. Uh, and yeah, we also have that new project, Gorilla History. Um, it's brand new. We only have one interview out so far, but we have another one ready to drop uh, later this week. And so Gorilla History covers that history from the views of the the oppressed, the proletarians, the colonized. Red Menace does political theory, walking you through some of these big texts of Marxist political theory by Lenin and Mao and, and Marx and Engels and others. And then Rev Left is just a catch-all show for anybody interested in, in left-wing philosophy and activism and, and analysis. So, And then, yeah, thank you so much for having me having me on this show. This is awesome. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking to both of you. And no matter what happens in our society, we just have to love each other. We have to serve yeah. people. We have to care about one another. And I always say serving people starts at home. It starts with how you treat the people around you, starts with how you treat your family and your friends, and then working out to take care of other people um, from that point of strength, I think is really important too. Sometimes people will use left-wing organizing as an escape from their personal problems or their home life. And I think that has its own uh, pitfalls and downfalls. So this holistic, totalizing love for everybody around you and, and willing to put others needs and desires and safety uh, ahead of your own, I think is something that we can all engage in on little and large scales and push this rotten society in at least a slightly less terrible direction. Yes, very well said. Um, I guess I think we'll leave it there. Hannah, do you have anything to add? Well, yeah, I was was just going to say, like, I really appreciate you coming on our show. I think you're a super compassionate, insightful, wonderful person, and I appreciated talking to you and like, you know, I, as I mentioned, like the whole aspect of everything in my own like consciousness development is kind of like bridging on the edge of being depressed. But I really appreciate like, you know, how hopeful you are and how you kind of like, you know, do acknowledge those aspects of it. But also, 
um, come at it from a heart of compassion and hope. So, yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brad. I really appreciate it. And I've, I've been very inspired by your work over the years um, on Rev Left. It's really changed my mind on, on a lot of topics. So, yeah, keep up the great work. And, um, yeah, we'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot, comrade. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Solidarity. Yep.